Good morning. There I am. Uh, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and pull it out. Open it up to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to be verses 21 to 23. If you don't have a Bible and you want to grab one, there are some in the back, right by the doors where you came in this morning. While you turn there, uh, I want you to take a little uh, imaginative journey with me, if you will. It's November 1st, 2015, which everybody knows is the day the Royals won the World Series. <coughs> The Royals have just uh, wrapped up Game 5 in New York. They're still uh, celebrating out there on the Mets field, and you get a text message from one of your good friends. It says, hey, I heard that uh, there was going to be a celebration for players, families, and friends tomorrow night when the Royals get back into town. Do you want to go with me? And you're like, yeah. Is Eric Hosmer going to be there? then yes, I want to go with you. And he says, okay, great, because I went to high school with Lorenzo Cain in Florida, and uh, so we can go and, and take part in that celebration. So you spend the next 24 hours just excited out of your mind, and when the evening of November 2nd rolls around, your friend comes and pick you up, picks you up, you drive over to the stadium, uh, he parks, you head to the entrance where this celebration is supposed to be happening, and of course, there's a security guard standing there. And your friend says, hey, no worries. He confidently walks up to the security guard and he says, uh, we're here for the World Series celebration. I, I'm friends with Lorenzo Cain. We went to high school together. And the security guard says, can you, can you offer me any proof of that? And right at that moment, uh, much to your benefit, guess who happens to walk up? Lorenzo Cain and his wife and his child. And you're like, oh, whew, my friend is going to get us in after all. And so Lorenzo Cain walks up and the security guard says, uh, Lorenzo, this man says that he went to high school with you. And Lorenzo Cain looks at your friend, looks at the security guard, looks at you, and he says, I'm sorry, man, I don't know you. And, and you start sweating because of the awkwardness, because now here you are, and there's no way you can save the situation. And your friend says, well, L Lorenzo, don't you remember? Uh, um, we, we went to high school together. He says, no, man, I'm I'm sorry. I don't know who you are. And he walks in and the security guard turns you away and as you're walking back to the car, dejected, the truth kind of starts to come out. This, your friend did go to high school with Lorenzo Cain, but he was a senior when Lorenzo was a freshman. <laughs> he didn't even know Lorenzo Cain existed. It's not like they, you know, tossed the ball back and forth on sunny Florida afternoons or something. And as you get in the car, you realize that even if my friend had known Lorenzo Cain, really well growing up in Florida. The only thing getting us through that door tonight was not my friend saying, I know Lorenzo Cain. It was Lorenzo Cain saying, I know him. That is the picture we get today in our verses in Matthew 7. That the profession that would have gotten you and your buddy into that celebration that night was Lorenzo Cain's profession of knowing you. The same thing as what we're going to see this morning in our text, that Jesus says what's ultimately going to usher you into eternity in the presence of the Lord is not that you say, I think I knew Jesus. It's that the Lord looks at you and says, I know you. Like family, you've been adopted into my family. Here's how Jesus paints this picture. Matthew 7, verse 21 not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. If ever there was a passage of scripture for us to see right to the heart of as the church in America, this is it. We've made it incredibly easy for people to believe that they have placed their faith in Jesus. We've made it incredibly easy and almost formulaic for people to have a sense of having been saved. And and we bring them to that moment in the American church, and then we just leave them standing there. Like if they just repeated the words of the prayer, then everything is good. And Jesus is giving us a picture here that there might be more at stake than the words to the prayer. There might be more at stake than just repeating what someone tells you to say and then going about the rest of your life. The goal this morning, hear me right at the beginning, is not for everyone in the room to question whether or not they've been saved. But the goal this morning is for everyone in the room to think about whether or not they've been saved. Because... That's where Jesus takes us here. And so I want to be really careful with the context and make sure we get it right. I want us to see it very, very clearly uh, through this morning. So we need to look at where we are in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus began with the Beatitudes, and he said the follower uh, of Jesus has this heart that above all other things is humble, that has humility before him. And that sets the groundwork for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus starts with the heart, and then he never wavers from it. Everything that follows in the Sermon on the Mount is all about the heart of someone who claims to follow after Jesus. And so then he begins to talk about the law. And he says, the most important thing about a follower of Christ, a follower of mine, interaction with the law is that they understand that I have fulfilled it for them. You don't have to do it on your own. You can't do it on your own. I'm not abolishing it and saying that it doesn't matter anymore. No, Jesus says, I am the fulfillment of the law. Every jot and tittle is what the word actually says. Every dot over an I, every cross of a T, I fulfilled everything on your behalf. And that as a follower of mine, you ought to be centered on the will of the Father in the midst of the law. It's not just the do's and don'ts. It's about being obedient to the heart of God. Then he moves on and he talks about just daily life, in your religious life and in your just physical living, you ought to be wholly dependent upon the Lord. That your heart just longs to cling to him in your prayer and in your fasting and in your giving and your heart longs to cling to him in regard to your stuff and in regard to your worrying about day in and day out and the stuff that bogs us down in life. That nothing should be more important to you than just depending upon the Lord in all of those matters. And then he arrives at this conclusion in the back half of Matthew chapter 7. And it's all about eternity. And it's like he's got his disciples gathered there in front of him. And he looks up and he begins pleading with the gathered crowd. Have this heart. Be this person at the core of who you are. And so he begins to, to really funnel us down if you will, through this conclusion. He begins by saying, enter through the narrow gate. There's a wide gate and an easy path, and it leads to destruction. And there's a narrow gate and a hard path, and it leads to life. And I'm imploring you, Jesus says, enter through that narrow gate. 
And so then as someone listening to this, you would have said, okay, I think I have, but how do I be sure? And Jesus says, I'll tell you. I'm going to do it by telling you about two different kinds of trees. There's a healthy tree that bears good fruit, and there's a diseased tree that bears bad fruit. How do you know if you've entered through the narrow gate? It's all about the fruit. What is the produce of your heart? What just bubbles out of the center of who you are every day, all day, to an increasing measure as you go along following Jesus? And if it's good fruit, great. If it's bad fruit, Jesus says, those trees are cut down and thrown into the fire. Okay, I think I entered through the narrow gate. I see some good fruit. And Jesus says in this passage, let's be sure. Let's be certain that that's what's happened. Two professions in this. One from a person who thinks they've placed their faith in Jesus and one from the Lord. And this passage has a certain moment in mind that we're all going to face. It's clearly speaking about Judgment Day. Jesus refers to it in verse 22 as that day. On that day, many will say to me, that day is all throughout the New Testament. That day is coming for all of us, where we will stand all on our own there before the judgment seat of the Lord. Every single person, believer or non-believer, And what is there in that moment is what is called the Bema seat of of the Lord, the Bema seat of Christ. It's literally this raised platform where a judge would sit. That word is used 10 times throughout the New Testament. A couple of them are listed there for you. In in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due. In Romans 14.10, Uh, Paul says, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. When I think about a judge on a seat, if you will, uh, our our head snaps to like television courtroom images or, you know, maybe your own personal experience in a courtroom. Heaven forbid you've ever had to endure that. And we see a judge at the front of the room. He's wearing robes. He or she's wearing robes, you know, big some sort of like desk or platform out in front of them. But what is in mind here is much grander in scale. What's in mind here is something that I think looks maybe a little bit more like Abraham Lincoln at the Lincoln Memorial. He's like high and seated above. And he's huge. He dwarfs other people. And even that is just the smallest magnitude of what it could possibly be. In fact, Isaiah 6 gives us the best picture of what this moment looks like. If you want to flip back to Isaiah 6, I'm going to start in verse 1, and and I'm going to read you what this moment is like. Isaiah gets a vision of it as he receives his calling from the Lord to be a prophet. Isaiah 6.1 says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. 
I think that's closest to what that day is going to be like. We're going to come into the presence of the Lord. He's going to be seated high and lifted up. And the only thing resounding in that room is going to be the sound of this holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Like, you cannot miss it. And standing there in his presence, or more than likely falling to your knees in his presence, you're going to be certain of one thing. I am ruined. I am lost. For of all the things that I could be, I'm just just a person of unclean lips. Let's forget everything else. But that alone is enough to condemn me in the presence of a holy and a righteous God. You don't just have to be a believer to have that sort of response. In fact, Philippians 2 says that every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That doesn't mean that every person is going to be saved, but it means when every person goes into that room on judgment day, they're going to understand that Jesus is Lord, that God is holy. I'm a a man of unclean lips, Isaiah says. And in the run of the Sermon on the Mount, just harping on the necessity of having this heart that longs to follow the Lord and just give all of ourselves to him, Jesus says, that day is coming, and here's what's going to happen. And so he sets this scene for us where an individual walks into that place and two truthful professions are going to have to happen on that day. One, an individual's profession of faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, covered by his righteousness, their sin forgiven. The other is that God is going to have to look at that person and say, I know you. I know you because you've been adopted as my child thanks to your faith in Jesus Christ. Come and spend eternity with me. The other option is that God may say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. So we're just gonna, we're gonna walk our way through this. This statement, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many works in your name is not enough to save a person. That is clear from the text. Jesus is reiterating the fact that a deep and abiding change has to take place in a person's heart, which radically reorients their lives. I don't know what your your daily work routine is like, but you're late to a meeting. You go rushing in, and it's an important meeting, and so understandably, your boss looks at you and gives you, doesn't have to say anything, just gives you this look of like, you're 15 minutes late, where have you been? And so you say, I got a flat tire on the way here. Your boss is kind of looking at you. Your clothes look fine. Your hands don't have like grease on them or anything. And so in the moment, you're realizing, I think I need a better story. So you say, and as I was changing it, I got hit by a semi. (laughs) And your boss is like, how are you here? How could you walk here? What, this should have some sort of impact on you. You should be changed. I mean, how do you have bones left? It's that kind of change that ought to happen to us if we genuinely put our faith in Jesus Christ. You cannot say, I have met the Savior of the world. I have seen his grace and mercy. I have placed my faith in his work on the cross and be unchanged by it. You cannot walk away from that moment the same person you were when you entered into that moment. It's not possible. 
Jesus is saying that kind of change is necessary. That kind of heart reorientation, that kind of full life impact has got to happen for a person in order for them to truly have experienced saving faith in Jesus Christ's work on the cross. Instead, this person standing here on that day is self-deceived. And self-deception, when it comes to matters of salvation, is eternally condemning. It's eternally damning. In matters of eternity, the only thing that matters is faith in Jesus. That's all. That's the only thing that's going to save you on that day. That phrase, Lord, Lord, the repetition of the Lord's name, for Jesus' listeners, they would have understood that you did that when you really respected or admired someone. It would be like me coming uh, to Kevin and saying, Kevin, Kevin. It's like, I respect you. I admire you. I'm, I'm lifting you up into this place of, of admiration. Jesus says, Lord, Lord, isn't enough to save a person. To be clear, everyone who is saved is absolutely going to say that in that moment. I mean, uh, you're going to fall down in his presence, and you're going to see his greatness and his righteousness and his holiness, and you're going to meet Jesus for the first time, and you're just going to fall on your knees, and you're going to say, Lord, Lord, and it's going to be this heartfelt, like, oh, finally. People who haven't been saved are going to get into that moment, and they're going to say, Lord, Lord, and it's going to involve a whole lot more fear. That doesn't mean that they're going to be saved. I think there are two things in this text, uh, two truths that we look to oftentimes as assurances of our salvation that aren't assurances of our salvation. The first is that we want to think that faith and right belief is going to save us. If we just think the right things about Jesus, then we're going to be saved. Thinking the right things about Jesus and the gospel is absolutely necessary to your salvation. You need to believe the truths of the gospel. You've got to understand what sin is and who God is and what Jesus did and what that means for you. But merely thinking the right things about Jesus doesn't make you saved. You could walk over to Target. That'd be a long walk. You could drive over to Target. And then you could walk around in Target and you could just survey all the people there and say, tell me what you think about Jesus. And some of them would certainly tell you, well, I think he actually lived. Others might say, I think he actually lived and he taught some great principles. There could be others who would say, I think he actually lived and taught some great principles and even died a, a pretty tragic death. Or somebody might say, I think he lived and taught some great principles and even maybe did some miracles and uh, died unrightfully. But those people might not have any faith connection to Jesus. It's just right thoughts. I think Jesus was an actual person, and he did some good stuff. Do you think you're going to heaven? Well, yeah, I think, I think Jesus lived. Lord, Lord. We want to assure ourselves that we've been saved because we can just click off yeses to the questions about who was Jesus. Unfortunately, that's not the case. Thinking good things about Christ isn't going to save you. Respect for Jesus isn't going to save you. Admiration for Jesus isn't going to save you. In matters of eternity, faith in Jesus is all that matters. And then the person goes on. Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? That's a pretty impressive list of religious activities. It's like the person says, Lord, Lord, there was some fruit, I think. But in the same way that 
putting your faith in your right thoughts about Jesus isn't going to save you. Putting your faith in your religious behavior isn't going to save you either. Let me translate this into today's language. Lord, Lord, did we not go to church a couple times a month when there wasn't something else we could have done instead? Lord, Lord, did we not volunteer at the church when they really needed people and begged us? Lord, Lord, didn't we do some really Christian-looking things from time to time when it was convenient and didn't bother us? Jesus is making it clear that that stuff is not going to save you. We talked about that a couple weeks ago when we talked about good and bad fruit. You can't just staple some figs onto your thorn bush and hope that there's some fruit. You can't just try to add some positive, maybe Christ-mentioned virtues into your life and think that that's going to save you. There's got to be this total change in your heart. And Jesus says, just because you did those things, your heart was never actually close to mine, and I never knew you. In matters of eternity, faith in Jesus is all that matters. I want to drill down below the surface a little more here. In both of these things, who does this person actually think is going to save them on that day? Themselves. I thought the right stuff. I did some Christian stuff. I did some religious looking things. I think I'm going to be saved. Jesus cuts straight to the point, and I want to do the same thing. If you're here this morning and you think you're going to be saved because of anything that starts with the pronoun I, then you may be in for a rude awakening on that day when you stand before the Bema seat of the Lord. Your profession of faith has got to begin and end with Jesus. It's got to begin with the fact that you're sinful and you know that you need him, and it's got to end with the fact that he died on the cross for you and rose on the third day and defeated the power of sin and death, and that's the only thing I hope and trust in. And then God responds to this person. The first thing he says is, I never knew you. The issue here isn't that God doesn't know that you exist. That's not what Jesus is saying. God's all-knowing. He's all-seeing. He knows you exist. He knows everything about you. He knows every person that's ever existed or will exist. And he knows everything about every person that's ever existed or ever will exist. This is more of like a familial context. In Amos 3, 2, God says to the Israelites, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. That's the same word that Jesus is using here. In his absolute sovereignty, he knows everyone. But to the Israelites and Amos, he's saying, I know you like family. Jesus here is saying, I never knew you like family. I never knew you as a son or a daughter, thanks to your faith in Jesus Christ. And then he says the result of that, depart from me. Jesus, over the course of this little funnel here in the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, paints an increasingly vivid picture of what hell is. On the wide and narrow path, he talks about the wide path leading to destruction, and that sounds pretty bad. And then when he talks about good and bad fruit, he says that diseased trees will be cut down and thrown into the fire, and that sounds pretty bad. And then he says, depart from me, which maybe sounds like he relaxes things a little bit, but actually that's the most serious thing about hell. That's the true devastation of hell. I think the Bible is serious when it talks about the more physical realities of hell, but I think the Bible is more clear on the fact that the greatest 
consequence that hell holds is eternal estrangement from the presence of an eternally loving God. The essence of hell is the absence of the Lord for all of eternity. And then he says why he never knew that person and why they must depart from them because they are a worker of lawlessness. If you stand before Christ, if you stand before the Lord in this moment of judgment and you're covered by faith in, the right, by faith in Christ and his righteousness is covered over your sins, then he's going to look at you and see righteousness. God's going to look at you and see the righteousness of Christ. If you stand there in that moment and you haven't placed your faith in him, then he's going to look at you and see lawlessness, sin. It doesn't matter if you believed, thought some good things about Jesus. It doesn't matter if you did some religious stuff. All of that is going to be lawless because of the presence of your sin, your unforgiven, unpaid-for sin. Your words won't matter. Your deeds won't matter. It matters of eternity. The only thing that matters is faith in Jesus. It's on that basis and that basis alone that someone gets into heaven. It's, it's all about abiding, persisting, prevailing, transforming, heart-changing faith in Jesus Christ. While I was studying for this message, I came upon a cross. Uh, a cross. I, I did come upon the cross. But I also came upon a quote uh, by a man named John Newton. He said the following, If I ever reach heaven, I expect to find three wonders there. First, to meet some I never thought to see. Second, to miss some I had thought certain to meet there. And third, the greatest wonder of all, to find myself there. Of all the days for us to sit and really look at the reflection in the mirror of Scripture, today is incredibly important. There are some of you here this morning who have absolutely nothing to fear about that day in the judgment seat of Christ. You know for certain you've placed your faith in him. You know for certain that your sin has been atoned for by your faith in Jesus Christ. And you know for certain that you're going to stand there in that moment and your profession of Lord, Lord, is going to be one of just love and joy at the sight of him. But if you're here this morning and you're wondering, am I saved? There are some places in scripture you can turn to help or turn to look for help in examining your heart in this matter. One of them is to just go back and reread the Sermon on the Mount. Start in Matthew 5 and work your way all the way through it. Does this describe my heart? Is this who I am at my core? Another would be to go and read the book of 1 John. It's short. You could do it in, uh, you could read it every day over the course of a week and not lose too much of your time. But John writes that book for the purpose of assuring believers in their salvation. I came up with a list of questions for you to reflect on this morning. You can put all five of them up there. Was your moment of salvation formulaic, or was it the formation of a relationship? We do people a great disservice when we say that being saved is simply a matter of repeating this prayer. Well, yeah, it's absolutely important that we pray and confess our sins and we ask Jesus to forgive us, but being saved is about a totally new heart. It's about placing all your hope and all your trust and all your faith on the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and looking to him and to him only for your salvation and that that should change who you are. That's like getting hit by a semi-truck. It just changes you. Does your relationship with Christ only exist at church? 
your relationship with Christ only exists at church, I would maybe go so far as to say there may not be a relationship there. Let me tell you what Jesus didn't do. He didn't finish the Sermon on the Mount and look at his 12 disciples and say, hey, in about seven months, I'm going to teach in some, in some parables. You should come back. You're not going to want to miss those. No, he said, you follow me every day, all the time, in total obedience. That requires a lot more out of us than an hour and a half on Sunday mornings and hoping Tim doesn't get long-winded. It requires giving our lives to him, our entire heart. Is worship merely a time for singing? And optional at that. I don't really like this song. Worship ought to be the heartbeat of your life if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, that you can't help but sing his praises Sing them actually physically, but you can't help to sing them just with your life. Every day you go about just worshiping the Lord. Is your approach to Scripture purely academic? You just go there for some information, or you go there for weapons against other people who think something differently than you? I use the Bible in order to build my case, so to speak. We ought to approach the Word with this just intense passion for meeting the Lord there, for seeing who God is and seeing the gospel in there and just letting it preach to us every time we get in there. It might not change your life every day, but we should hope it does every time we come to it. Last one, is there ongoing transformation in your life? In an ongoing nature, every single day, are you being conformed more and more to the image of Jesus Christ? I think those are great questions to reflect on. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up, and we're going to sing the song, In Christ Alone. Uh, It's easy to sing some of these songs that are familiar to us and not really think about what the words are actually saying, so I just want to recite the first verse to you because this should be the truthful profession of every follower of Jesus, that in Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love What depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when strivings cease, my comforter, my all in all. Here in the love of Christ, I stand. When I walk in on that day to the Bema seat of Christ, I want to know that I'm going to walk in there and I'm going to stand. And I'm going to stand for one reason and one reason only. And it has nothing to do with the things I thought or the religious stuff that I did. It has everything to do with the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross for me. And that's it. That's the only reason I'm going to stand there. This morning, there are undoubtedly people in this room who know for certain that they're going to stand in that moment thanks to the work of Christ on their behalf as well. And we ought to just live lives that rejoice in him for that truth. There could be people here this morning who aren't certain about that. And I want to just plead with you for a moment. Think about it. Just being here this morning doesn't mean you're going to be in the Lord's presence for all of eternity. Just thinking good things about Jesus doesn't mean that you're going to be saved. You've got to have faith in him. It's the only thing that matters. Stand up. Let's sing.